Hi, welcome to the Holton Baptist Church podcast. We are really glad that you have joined us and we pray that the message you're about to hear will really bless you, encourage you and help you to encounter God afresh for yourself. Great to have you with us. Enjoy. So we reach today the last in our series looking at these verses from Micah 6 verse 8. These verses, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, this is a time we have remembered and we've thought about over the last few weeks when Micah is speaking to God's people at a time when they have turned away from him. So you'll remember that Micah is speaking at a time where the kingdom has been divided into two. You have the northern kingdom and you have the southern kingdom. And God raises up prophets in this time to call the people back to him. So you know we know the story don't we of uh, God and his people. It's like a roller coaster. They start really close. They start really close with God and in fact we were reminded in our prayer meeting this morning of the words from Genesis 3:8 where it says that God walked and he talked with Adam and Eve in the cool air of the afternoon. And what happens is that this is where God's people are as close to him as they ever have been. And then we know that uh, Adam and Eve disobey God. They eat from the fruit of the tree of of the knowledge of life and death. Uh, And in that moment, they distance themselves from God. They're disobedient and they distance themselves from God. And from that moment on, although God still walks with his people, although he desires this close, intimate relationship with them, God's people just, they keep messing up. They keep messing up. They get it wrong. They draw really near to God. They really get it. And then suddenly they turn their backs on him and they walk away. And this is where God's people are at the minute. They're divided in their kingdom because they've had two supposed kings who claim to be the anointed king of God's people. But what they're doing, what they're doing in this time is maintaining their religious activities. They're still sacrificing They're still bringing sacrifices in the way that God has told them to. They're still attending temple worship in the way that God has told them to. But the problem is it's a facade that masks a deep malaise. Because the truth is, the people of God, although they're doing the things externally that God has commanded them to in terms of their worship lives, in terms of their sacrifice... They've forgotten that to be one of God's people means you are called out, that you are called out and you are invited, you are compelled, you are commanded to live like one of God's people. It's not enough just to do the business. It's not enough just to turn up at worship. It's not enough just to bring your sacrifice, offer your tithe perhaps nowadays. It's not enough just to read the scriptures or pray even unless you are living with God, unless you are walking with God, you're not doing it. You're not doing the thing that God commands you to. So Micah sets out all of this, and and this is Micah's case against God's people. Micah acts, if you will, in the position of prosecutor against God's people, bringing God's charge against them. And the people, the charge that God brings is that the people have forgotten that faithfulness is more than ritual. They've forgotten that faithfulness is more than simple ritual. 
And they've got to live out their call. They've got to live out the way God has called them. And the people are in crisis because they've forgotten these fundamental truths. So Micah just brings it back in this simple prophecy, in two lines, in two lines in our translation. He basically encompasses and sets forth everything the people aren't doing that they should be doing, that they should be people of just action. They should be people who love mercy and who are humble and obedient to the Lord. Now, we've done this in a slightly different order. Why? And I told you it would all make sense towards the end. And now I'm going to reveal what my thinking has been on this. We haven't done this in act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. We've actually moved justly to the end. So we have loved mercy, we've walked humbly, or at least I pray we've been loving mercy and walking humbly. And now we're acting. And why? Because to love mercy and to walk humbly are internal states. Okay, they are personal characteristics that we need to cultivate in ourselves. We need to individually and personally be a people who love mercy. We individually and personally need to take responsibility for understanding how God has been merciful to us and how therefore we should be merciful to others. We have to walk humbly. No one can do that for us. Friends, no one can do that. I can't stand here and preach every Sunday or every few Sundays and, and pray for you guys at home and go, oh, I'm really, I pray they're walking humbly. Oh, Lord, just, I pray they're walking humbly. I will. I will do that. And I'll stand up here and I'll preach it till I'm blue in the face and you're sick of hearing it. But I can't make any of you walk humbly. That's your business. You have to surrender yourself to the Spirit to walk humbly. Now, we do these things. We love mercy and we walk humbly in communities, and we do them as communities. But our corporate ability to do that, are we merciful as a church? Are we walking humbly with God as a church? Depends on our individual commitment to those things. Depends on our individual commitment to those things. And we need to be open to the Holy Spirit in growing these things within us. We need to be prepared to let God challenge us, to let God confront us, and to let God say, this is where you are unmerciful. This is where you are not obedient. This is where you are not humble. And to fix those things in us, because that's God's promise, isn't it? That's God's promise to us, that it doesn't rely on our strength, because in and of ourselves, we don't have that strength. But it's God's spirit who breathes these characteristics within us. I just want to sound, though, a note of caution. And it's really important that we also recognise these are not things that we beat other people up with. Okay, these are not sticks that we use to punish our sisters and brothers. Now, isn't it the case? Maybe you haven't found this. I have. Maybe you haven't found this. But isn't this the case that Christians are often really, really quick to judge, especially the behavior of other Christians, okay? We are so quick to judge the behavior of other Christians. We are brilliant at it. But the problem is that we are unjust judges. We are incapable by our very nature of being able to judge fairly other people. We just, we can't do it. In fact, Jesus warns us about this. He says these words, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then these words that are just so powerful. 
Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrites, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. These are well-known words. In fact, how many of us have used these words? How many of us have used these words? And how many of us have used these words when we're the subject being judged? Don't judge! We bring up those first verses. Don't judge me. You're not allowed to judge me. Jesus says, don't judge me when we're being judged. Well, here's the thing. We are, as a people, really quick to forgive ourselves. As a people, we are really quick to offer forgiveness to ourselves. We cut ourselves way more slack than we are even prepared to give to others. For example, let's say I get mad at you for something you've done. Let's say you really, really irritate me. Not that any of you do, obviously. I love you all very much. But let's say you really irritate me, and I'm really mad at you, and I get angry, and I snap at you, and I say something that really I shouldn't have said, and I regret. Let's say I do that. Well, I know that that anger is the result of a circumstance and a situation. I know that I was under a lot of pressure. I hadn't slept well the night before. I know that you just really pushed a button, and and you didn't know you were pushing that button, but it really was a trigger for me. I know all of these things. So I forgive myself, and I can say, well, you know me. I'm not like that. I'm not like that. I'm not an angry person. I'm not this way. I was having a bad day. The circumstances provoked me. And, And maybe those things are true. Maybe we were having a bad day. We all have bad days. But let's say it's the other way around, and you get mad at me, and perhaps I don't think those things about you. Perhaps I don't think, well, that's not what they're like. They're obviously just having a bad day. That's not what they're like. Maybe the circumstances have provoked this. No, instead, you're mean-spirited. You're fundamentally a flawed person, and I am definitely a better Christian than you are. Truth is that we are all like that as people. That is inherent in our nature. That's our instinct as humans. And so that's why Jesus cautions us. Examine yourselves before you start to pass judgment on others. Because the truth is, we're going to have a huge plank in our eye as well. We're going to have a huge plank in our eye. And we better attend to that before we take the speck out of our, sister, out of our brother's or sister's eye. See, we better be sure we're on really solid ground before we pass judgment. Jesus has an encounter, and it's in John 8. It's one of the contested passages, uh, John 8, verses 1 to 8. But it says this, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Wouldn't you love to know what Jesus was writing? Love to know what Jesus was writing in those moments. But the passage sums this up. 
let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, you've got to note here, Jesus doesn't condone the sin of the woman. She's guilty. And a little later, Jesus tells her to repent and to continue in sin no longer. He tells her, he calls her to account for her actions. Why can he do this? Because he's the only sinless person who's ever lived. He's the only just person who's ever lived. He's the only person who didn't have so much as a speck in his eye. And this is the tension, isn't it, that we face in Christianity? Because we know on the one hand that we have to confront sin. We have to confront sin. We have to call it out. We are told we're commanded to confront sin. Actual, demonstrable, real sin has to be lovingly challenged. And then, and this is where sometimes we get it really badly wrong, the means of repentance, forgiveness, and restoration needs to be offered and followed through. Sin has to be addressed within the Christian community. We don't get a pass on our sinful behaviour simply by throwing Jesus' cautionary words. I I can't go and sin against you, actually sin against you, actually commit a sin against you, and then say, you don't get to judge me because Jesus says don't judge. Because Jesus also says repent and do not sin. So do you see where I'm going with this? Jesus says repent and do not sin. He tells us not to judge one another unless we are on solid ground. And we don't get a pass on our bad behaviour. But we do need to address our intentions, our hearts, our minds, and our circumstances before we confront sin. And we need to make sure that we're doing so in love, that we're acting out of love, out of a desire to see our sister or our brother grow in faith, out of a desire to see our sister or our brother come closer to God, and not out of malice out of a desire to see our sister or brother feel rubbish. We need to act justly. Now, if walking humbly, you remember this from a couple of weeks ago, was about having a right view of ourselves in relationship to God and being obedient and repentant, and if loving mercy was about cultivating hearts that long for forgiveness, recognising how much we've been forgiven... Then acting justly, to do justice, to do justly, is about this. It's about restoring what has been broken by sin. Justice is the restoration of what has been broken by sin. And I want to consider three things, three ways in which this command to do justly plays out. And that's the restoration of relationships. It is the conferring of dignity, and it is the building of kingdom values. So firstly, we are to be just in our relationships with one another. We are to be just in our relationships with one another. We are to treat one another equitably. We are to show the same grace and kindness to others as we would wish to receive ourselves. You remember some other words that often get bandied around, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Far be it from me to to slightly disagree with the word of the Lord. I would say do unto others more than you would have them do to you. Because fundamentally, we often forget the what they would do back to us bit. The thing is, we're not to seek revenge or disproportionate punishment for the wrongs that have been done to us, but to seek justice that allows for the restoration of a relationship on both sides to take place. Later, 
we'll be sharing in communion. And one of the greatest biblical examples of justice that restores relationships finds its, its seed in this communion meal. We know the story, don't we? And we'll hear it later. Jesus is dining with his friends. And during this meal, several amazing things happen. Jesus eats with the one who will betray him to the authorities. He shares a meal with Judas. He knows Judas is going to betray him. And yet he sits down and shares a meal with him. And not only that, he washes Judas's feet. He places himself as a servant, humble and merciful, in an undeniable and vividly lived out action. And he predicts that Peter will betray him. And this is what we're going to think about, that Peter will deny him. Peter, Peter's faith is so beautiful, isn't it? It's so wonderful. It's so human. It's so real. Peter follows Jesus, remember this. He was taken up to the Mount of Transfiguration to catch the briefest glimpse of who Jesus really was. He is the one to whom Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Peter is one of Jesus. He's not just one of Jesus' inner circle. He's part of the inner, inner circle. He's one of Jesus' BFFs, if you will. He's one of the closest people to Christ. So just imagine the sting that Peter must have felt as his Lord and his friend predicted that he would deny him. Imagine the pain of that. And yet, Sure enough, Peter does deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows. And at this point, surely Peter's thinking he's down, he's out of the game. This is it. He has completely soured his relationship with God. He has denied even knowing the Son of God. And Jesus has been arrested and taken for execution. The disciples have fled and they face an uncertain, probably very dangerous future. And Peter cannot even admit he knew Jesus let alone the intimacy of their relationship. What must have been in his heart at that moment? What agony must he have been feeling? And a few days later, the tomb is empty, and Jesus appears to the disciples in a locked room. And then again later, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and here he invites those men, including Peter, those fishermen, to take breakfast with him. And in an act of pure mercy, overflowing into justice, Jesus restores his relationship. Jesus restores Peter. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. To understand the significance of this, we're just going to dive a little bit into Jewish custom. Okay, so in Jewish custom, they have something called the teshuva. The teshuva is an act of repentance and return. It's a way of renewing and transforming individuals who are in broken relationships. There's a lot to it. There's a lot more to it than what I'm going to say. But what's important for us today is this, and this is written in the Mishnah. No, it's not. I've not put it up on the screen. I'll read it to you. The Mishnah says this. For transgressions between a person and God, Yom Kippur atones. 
However, for transgressions between a person and another, Yom Kippur does not atone until he appeases the other person. So Yom Kippur is the, uh, the, the feast, the festival, the moment of big sacrifice where the sins of all of the people of Israel are atoned for. Uh, Yom Kippur is a powerful, mighty thing. And, and do go and read a little bit more about Yom Kippur because you'll, you'll start to see our Jewish heritage, really, in our Christian faith. Yom Kippur is an amazing moment. And Jesus fulfills this. But in other words, what the Mishnah is saying is that the party who was wronged must give forgiveness for the wrongdoing. And at the same time, in most cases, the aggrieved party has a responsibility to forgive. Now, Jewish law states that the person who did the wrong should ask for forgiveness up to three times, after which that person is no longer considered accountable for the wrongdoing. Right, this doesn't mean that in Jewish custom, you could just go and utter a half-hearted, oh, I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and you're done. It's genuinely seeking after repentance. It's genuinely seeking to restore that relationship. But after three times, that person is absolved of their responsibility. How many times does Jesus ask Peter if he loves him? Three times. Three times. Jesus is enacting this custom that Peter would have known that Peter would have been uh, familiar with. And he gives Peter the just treatment for Peter's denials. But the way that Jesus does this is rooted in grace and mercy. He doesn't accuse Peter. He doesn't say to Peter, are you sorry that you denied me? He asks if he loves him. That is Jesus' grace and mercy and loving kindness in just action. Three times Jesus asks, and the relationship is restored in custom and in reality. We're called to the same way of acting. Okay, we don't need to take the Jewish custom. We don't need to take Shuva into our hearts, but we need to take the reality it points to. We need to take the principles behind it. If we are to do justly in this world, we need to be prepared for, to forgive, but we also need to accept restorative justice. We cannot be content with saying things like, well, I didn't mean that. It's not like me, I was having a bad day. Forgiving ourselves. And then heap anger and condemnation on others by refusing to forgive them. We don't get to cut ourselves a pass while accruing points and debts against other people. To truly restore the relationship, to to be together again, we have to accept wrongdoing where it was done. Otherwise, we are refusing to accept or acknowledge the plank in our own lives. So it comes down to this question. Are we prepared to grant others, even those who have wronged us, dignity? Because to do justly is to enable dignity. It allows dignity to the offended party, the party who has done wrong too, and, and to the offender. It allows the person who was sinned against to lay the wrongdoing aside, and it allows the person who did commit sin the opportunity to repent, to make right. Dignity is something we all have, and something we can lose all too easily. We are created, are we not, in the image of God? We are created in the image of God. That means we have a fundamental dignity. Injust action strips us and others of that dignity. Now, 
There's a document, you may be familiar with this document, it's called the Universal De Declaration of Human Rights. And I both love and hate the fact that we have this document. I love the fact we have a Universal Declaration of Human Rights because it enshrines in law things we are all entitled to. And I hate the fact that we have to have a Universal Declaration of Human Rights that enshrines the things we're entitled to. And it was drafted by the UN in Paris, December the 10th, 1948, in the wake of the Second World War and all the atrocities committed during that conflict. And there are 30 articles, many of which, if you're actually familiar with the Bible, will sound amazingly familiar. Consider this one. This is Article 1, uh, the very first article of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Is this ringing some bells for you? How's about this from Galatians? You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. What about Article 14? Article 14, and this, has become, this was also came up in our prayer meeting this morning, everyone has the right to seek and enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution, something quite profound and powerful and relevant to our world today. Everyone has the right to asylum from persecution. So what about this from Leviticus? When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You can actually go through all 30 articles in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and find at least one, but normally dozens of scriptural passages that say exactly the same thing. Because as human beings, we need laws. As human beings, we need to write this stuff down and say, here is a document that tells me what God tells me I'm entitled to. God just says, do these things. I am the Lord your God, obey my commands. Dignity towards others. But Article 7, Article 7 is one I just want to pause and rest for a moment on. And it says this, all are equal before the law and are entitled without discrimination to equal protection of the law. All are entitled to equal protection against any discrimination in violation of this declaration and against any incitement to such discrimination. All are considered equal. You see, to do justly, to do justice, to be just, is equitable treatment. James has this to say, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Dignity means treating everyone with the same basic rights. To act justly means we give people dignity. We do not show favoritism. 
I want to tell you about my friend Sam. Sam is a minister uh, as well. He's, he's older than I am, and he's been a minister for many decades. Son of a Baptist minister, Baptist minister himself, and a guy who's got a real heart for social justice. So a few years ago, Sam uh, joined in with the BBC and did a test, a social justice test. He went out, and he's a Baptist, so normally, you know, we're all jeans and shirts and hoodies and stuff. But he went out in all his collar, nice suit, you know, jacket, the whole works, looking really smart. And he walked around the town centre where he was based, asking people if he could borrow their mobile phone to make a call. And every single person he asked gave him their mobile phone. Well, that wasn't even a question about it. It wasn't even like a moment says, oh, yeah, here you go. Here you go, because he looked, you know, like a vicar. And vicars are trustworthy, aren't we? No, we are supposed to be trustworthy. Vicars are trustworthy. So he looked like a vicar. He looked respectable. So then he went away, and he got made up to be, you know, looking like he was homeless out on the streets, straggly hair, dirty, unkempt. And he went out, and he did the same thing, same town centre, same time of day. Can I borrow your mobile phone? And of... The 20, 30 people he approached, one person said, yes, you can borrow my phone. So Sam was the same person. Fundamentally, he was exactly the same person. Nothing had changed in him. His nature hadn't changed. His status hadn't changed. He just looked different. So why was he treated so differently? Because we compare all the time, and we usually do it unfavorably. So acting justly turns this upside down. It lets people have the dignity of not comparing them to others. It means you don't look upon the person who is well off more favorably than the person who is not. You do not look upon the person who is better dressed more favorably. You do not look upon the person who tithes more, serves more, prays more, reads the Bible more, anything more favorably, because that's not how God looks at us. We read these words, when God sends Samuel to anoint David as king, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So at this moment, Samuel has gone to anoint one of the sons of Jesse, and he comes across Eliab. And Eliab is the eldest son of Jesse, and by all accounts, he's like a latter-day Hercules. He's big and buff and beautiful and, and the obvious choice for king. And God says, no, I've rejected him. David is going to be the king, the smallest, youngest shepherd boy, the least of the least of the least, because God doesn't look to outward appearances, but to our hearts. Society does completely the opposite, and in doing so, it strips the dignity of everybody, and we cannot do that. We are not uh, permitted to do this if we are following God, if we are people of God. And when we start to grant people dignity, when we are just in our approaches to others, then, then we see some kingdom values start to come out. This understanding of just action, of restoring what was broken by sin, we see in perfect example at the cross. In his mercy, Jesus paid the debt that was rightfully ours. But in his mercy, his justice is also present because there had to be a payment. There had to be a restoration of humanity to God. 
Humanity had sinned, and remember what I said earlier, justice is the restoration of that which has been broken by sin. Humanity had broken the relationship with God through sin, and God wanted to restore that. There had to be restoration, so God took it upon himself to do that. He took it on himself to restore what was broken. God's just action is to assure that the relationship and dignity between creator and created is restored. And the way he does this is probably, possibly, likely to be incomprehensible to us because somehow in the greatest act of human injustice ever perpetrated, God's just actions are accomplished. God's justice prevailed. And we are asked, we are invited, we are compelled, and we are called to be these people, to act justly, to do justice, to be just as part of our fundamental fabric. Because without justice to restore what has been broken by sin, there is no kingdom. Everything, everything we have thought about in this brief dive into Micah, to love mercy, to walk humbly, to act justly, these are kingdom values. These are the things that God requires of us. Please note, these are not the things God suggests we do. These are not possibilities that God offers. These are not ideas that God chucks out there in some crazy brainstorm session. And these are not things that God says, if you do this, I'm going to give you a better seat and special access and bonus features. These are what God requires of his people. He requires us to love mercy. He requires us to walk humbly. And he requires us to do justly. We cannot love mercy as a concept We cannot desire humility as a nice thought. And we cannot just like the idea of justice in theory. God calls us to do these things, to live them out, to be people who are marked out and set apart by these qualities. And it's going to take courage, and it's going to take sacrifice, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to cost us. We are going to be asked to stick our necks out, to give up our sense of self-righteousness, to start seeing others the way that God sees them, to forgive when we don't want to, to hold back from judgment when it is not our place to judge. We're going to have to surrender our prejudice, our self-interest, our desire for revenge. We're going to be confronted and challenged by our own biases and preconceptions. And we're going to have to start looking at the world very, very differently because a charge has been laid against us. And the consequences of not addressing this are clear. The Lord requires these things of us to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So let's commit ourselves today, individually and as a church, to these things. Let's embody these things in our life and let's be the people of God here in this place and at this time. Let's act justly. Let's love mercy and let's walk humbly with our God. Let's pray. Lord God, sometimes you require of us things that we know we cannot just do in our own strength. And so we get scared and we retreat. Sometimes you require of us things that just frighten us, things that call us out of our comfort zone, that that put us into a place of vulnerability, and so we hide away from those things. We shy away. We, We say, I like this, but I can't do this. So, Lord, we call upon your spirit today. 
We call upon your spirit through the name and through the power and by the blood of Jesus Christ to flow into us and to give us all that we need so that we can act justly, so that we can love mercy, so that we can walk humbly with you, our God. Lord, Father, help us to be these people in ourselves, in our church, and into this world. May your mercy motivate us. May we humbly and obediently follow you. And may we act justly in this world, seeking your kingdom above all other things. We ask this and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus who embodied all those three things to us so perfectly. Amen. Thanks for joining us on the Holton Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to keep in touch with you, so do reach out to us. You'll be able to find us at our website. That's www.holtonbaptists.org.uk. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram if you search for at Holton Baptists. And we hope that you will join us again next time as we share the word of God and the love of Jesus Christ with you. God bless. God bless.